I'm going to spend a few weeks just looking at a very important passage in Luke's Gospel, something that is quoted from Isaiah. I think you'll immediately know where we're going to be. So we're going to start uh, Luke chapter 3, although the passage that we're heading for is in Luke chapter 4. I'm just going to gather some verses on our way through to <coughs> Luke 18 and 19, which is uh, Luke 4, 18 and 19, which is our focal point. Luke 3, verse 21 says this. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing And afterward, when they ended, he was hungry. And verse 14, obviously I'm just putting the temptations in parenthesis there because we're going to go on beyond that. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, I know that in a lot of places today you can (coughs) go and hear sermons preached on anointing. seems to be a major theme. Uh, A lot about the anointing that needs to be on our lives. Lots of altar calls at the end of services these days about coming to receive anointing. There's a lot that's talked about in terms of the anointing that's on one person rubbing off onto someone else. And I know that there is a sense in which uh, as we walk with one another, we do benefit from what one another have in the Lord. But we want to pick up some principles about anointing as we look at this passage, which I I trust are going to be biblical rather than just simply, you know, Christian folklore, (laughs) because that sort of thing does sometimes come around 
and we just want to go back to the scriptures. We're going to look at some aspects of anointing and we're going to realise that Jesus himself, of course, is the key to anointing. Um, it's pretty obvious that if you misread Jesus, you're going to miss the point of it all. It's very obvious that that's what happened here in Nazareth. They misread Jesus and they missed the point of it all. The very last thing that I read there in verse 22 was that they said, is this not Joseph's son? (laughs) So they'd immediately brought the whole thing down to their understanding. Joseph's son. And yet we started reading in those verses in chapter 3 where it says, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. If we're really going to understand anointing properly, we're going to have to read Jesus properly and realise that he is certainly more than Joseph's son. If we stay with that supposition, we're going to miss whole principles of anointing. In fact, one of the things that concerns me at the moment is that much teaching on the anointing almost seems to reduce Jesus to Joseph's son implying that everything he was was a result of the anointing that was upon his life. Whereas really, there's so much more to it than that. So, let's just get that. We're going to look at Jesus and we're going to seek by God's grace to read Jesus rightly and in reading Jesus rightly, I trust that we're going to understand the anointing more accurately. Now, obviously, as we look at these verses in Luke 4, 18 and 19, it it, it would be tempting, I guess, to say, well, you can divide this up very simply. There are a number of points here. Preaching the gospel to the poor is one of them. Healing the brokenhearted is another. Proclaiming liberty to the captives is another. Recovery of sight to the blind another. Setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. You could divide it up very neatly in that kind of way. Um, Of course, if you've got an NIV, uh, you, you have... Five points there instead of six. And if you go back to Isaiah 61, you discover five points as well in the verses that are quoted here. But in some ways, it's not helpful just to divide it up into little packages. You see, the solutions are specific. If you are poor, you do need the good news of Jesus preached to you. If you're broken-hearted, you do need to be healed. If you are oppressed, you do need to be set free. (laughs) But for most of us, the problems don't exist in isolation. If you're really going to minister the good news to the poor, you'll find that poverty is not the only problem. And to try and reduce it into sort of like a a pharmacist shop where you come along and you, you say, oh, you've got this problem, bring this off the shelf, this is what you need is in some ways to miss out on the heart of the whole passage. Really, it's more comprehensive than that. This is Jesus acknowledging that the need in the world is being met by him. It's that comprehensive. He is the one who meets the needs of the world. And although it is good in some ways to divide it up into these little sections and to see just how specific God is, that there is an answer to poverty in Jesus. There is an answer to oppression in Jesus. There is an answer to brokenheartedness in Jesus. Yet we don't have to come to that point where we're sort of diagnosing our need down and saying, which of these things is me? 
I know this is a very sort of 20th century habit. I know we're almost at the end of the 20th century. I'm sure it's going to be a 21st century habit as well of trying to find exactly which point we identify with. People read the Sermon on the Mount like that. You know, which is me here, you know? Uh, they read this passage, which is me here? They read what it says in uh, Ephesians like that, you know? He gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. And everyone's trying to work out which one they are, forgetting that it actually says, for the equipping of the saints. Well, that's where we are, folks. <laughs> Why don't we identify with the general instead of always trying to come down to the specific? And what we're discovering here is that whatever our need, you might show up in all the categories. <laughs> Don't spend all your time trying to work out exactly which one you're in. You might show up in all of the categories, but the good news is that Jesus can meet your need. I mean, I've been in many places where there's poverty. And I think I've seen brokenheartedness in just about every place I've been as well. I think I've seen oppression as well. And to just try and target the need like that is not what the Lord's heart is all about. So we're going to try and keep it a little bit general. I'm not going to spend six weeks going through each of these things specifically, but I just want us to get a sense of it all. I'm going to start today by looking at the anointed one and, and then probably next time we'll look at poor and broken-heartedness and then the blind and the bound and then go on and see the favour of the Lord. But I, I really just want to, to get the full impact of these verses and we can't just really do that in one session But today we're going to start by looking at the Anointed One. We've already sung about the Anointed One. Let's look at the Anointed One in these verses. And I I just want to pick out some things which I guess are are fairly obvious about the Anointing upon the Anointed One. Um, First of all, about the person of the Anointed One. And then I want to talk about something about the purpose of the Anointing. And then I want to talk about outpouring, okay? Because all of these things are relevant around this whole subject of the Anointed One. So, let's look at the person of the Anointed One before we look at the purpose and the outpouring. In Luke uh, um, 4, verse 18, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, I'm sure that Jesus didn't read it like that when he read it in the synagogue. I'm reading it like that for emphasis. I don't believe that Jesus was drawing attention to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me as if to say, not you. (laughs) Uh Because he's anointed me, not you. Okay, It wasn't that kind of emphasis. But it is helpful to see that the Spirit of God does come upon human flesh. Um, One of the things that comes over very clearly in Acts chapter 2, quoting from Joel, is this, the, the, the Lord's Spirit is poured out upon flesh. From our perspective, this is something that we do need to get hold of because people get in a terrible muddle about this. They assume that the anointing of God supersedes our humanity. It doesn't. People get into a real muddle sometimes because they don't realise that the people that they look up to because they seem to have some particular anointing from the Lord are still only anointed flesh. This is why it doesn't pay to put people on pedestals, all right? But when we're looking at Jesus, we need to realise that it's not just the Spirit of God upon human flesh. It's more than that with Jesus. Okay? Now, this is why I'm going to make a distinction later on between the 
outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and the anointing that's on Jesus here in Luke chapter 3 and 4. But let's see that the Spirit comes upon the Lord Jesus as a person. And when we are talking about any form of anointing, the anointing does not exist in a sort of vacuum, you know. There's not some anointing that's sort of floating around out there. I know some songs seem to apply, imply that. You know that there's an anointing. Some preachers say there's an amazing anointing in this place. Um, I believe scripturally that anointing comes upon. Hmm? That seems to be how God anoints. It, it, he, has a, he has a focus for his anointing. Hmm? And, and that's really something that we need to take hold of and, and appreciate that, 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 that character still counts. Because God wants to anoint people. And here the anointing is upon the Lord Jesus. Now there will be differences between the anointing that we see here upon the Lord and the anointing that we see coming upon us. But let's see first of all that it comes upon a person. An anointing, if you like, the word is just a smearing on or an application of oil. And it has to be applied. That's, that's what an anointing is. <laughs> you can have anointing oil, but it's not an anointing until it's applied. Simple, isn't it, really? I'm sure we all understand that. Don't let's try and make it more complicated than that. Let's realise that Jesus, first of all, when he came, he came as the anointed one. This again might just take a little bit of effort just to get your mind round, but it is important to realise that Jesus is the anointed one. Some people imply that he's the anointed one because he was anointed. No, Jesus is the anointed one. <laughs> he had to be anointed because he is the anointed one. <laughs> it was the, the logical conclusion of the fact that he came as the anointed one. There's an amazing statement which is very easily missed because it's so familiar to just about everybody because it's read every Christmas time. In Matthew chapter 2, Look at it, just for a moment. The wise men come from the east. In the early part of Matthew chapter 2, we read it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Herod the king heard this and was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I'm sure you can see in verse 2, that the statement that the wise men made is rather extraordinary. They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now that's, that's unusual. Most people are not born king. They might be born heir to the throne, <laughs> but they're not born king. I know this is a, 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 a statement in 
Samuel, about the prophet Samuel, it says, he judged Israel all the days of his life. Now that's very interesting. Because we don't see him actually functioning as the judge until after the death of Eli. But the scripture says, he judged Israel all the days of his life. So, in some ways, even though he was just a little boy growing up in the temple, he was the standard by which things were being judged in those days. (laughs) Even though he was not actually sitting there in the seat of judgment, yet he was the standard and he judged Israel all the days of his life. Even as that little boy taken by Hannah and presented back in the temple, from that moment on, there was a new standard in the land. And from the moment that Jesus was born, he was born king of the Jews. I also believe that the moment that Jesus was born, the Christ was on the earth. It says, where is the Christ to be born? Christ means the anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one from the moment that he arrived on the earth. (laughs) And of course there was a point at which there had to be an anointing on his life to confirm that he was the anointed one. But we need to understand that about Jesus. That in order to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies, he came as the anointed one. He came as the Messiah. He didn't become the Messiah when at 30 years of age, the Spirit of God came from heaven and rested upon him in that way. He was the anointed one. He was the anointed one there in the manger at Bethlehem. He was the anointed one as he was presented in the temple. He was the anointed one as they escaped into Egypt. He was the anointed one as he grew up there in Nazareth. He was the anointed one as he worked in the carpenter's shop. But the time for his ministry had not yet come. But the person of Jesus was not in question. There was not a change in the nature of Jesus that took place when the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God coming upon Jesus in this way, in some ways, had two functions. First of all, it was confirmatory. Confirmatory for John the Baptist, for example. He knew from that moment on that this is the Anointed One but it also was a relevant moment for Jesus to begin his ministry. It talks about the fullness of the Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit. He being filled with the Spirit was led into the wilderness. After the temptations, it says he comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit. These are significant words. They're not empty words in Scripture. Fullness, power, they're important things. But don't let's lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the Anointed One of God. Just as it speaks of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, I believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the appointed Messiah, the one who comes, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God. And we need to understand that because we're talking about the anointing that's on Jesus. (laughs) And we need to understand certain differences about the anointing that's on Jesus and the effect on the ministry of Jesus and the anointing on our own lives too. So let's see this about the person of Jesus. This is not sort of to disappoint you. Those of you who've listened to sermons about you've got the same anointing as he had. Yes, you have got the same anointing as he had. Hmm? But that doesn't make you the anointed one in the same way that he was the anointed one. 
And we need to understand that special thing about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament prophecies predict the person of Jesus. It was not the anointing that made him the anointed. He is that anointed one. And when the Spirit of God came upon him, as he was praying there, being baptised by John in the Jordan, it was a confirmatory anointing on his life. And it was amazing, because the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus as a dove upon the Lamb. Comes as the dove upon the Lamb. When it talks about the anointing coming upon our life, it says that he is going to baptise us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus did not need that fire to come upon his life because there was no sin to burn up. The dove could come upon the lamb. Now great, if you've got a lamb-like disposition, (laughs) you can look to expect the dove to settle upon your life. But I think many of us need the fire. (laughs) All of us need the fire. But can you see that? The distinctiveness of this anointing in Jesus. The dove upon the lamb. Let's talk about the purpose of this anointing. Because I do want us to pray for one another this morning. I don't want to spend a long time on these things, but just to draw out the salient points. Luke chapter 4 again. Let's read those key verses, 18 and 19. Let them go into our hearts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Identification of purpose here is important. I know we had a lot of t-shirts printed on one occasion which uh, I was really excited about. I'd been out in Malaysia and uh, been in a really big church there in Kuala Lumpur and uh, been really thrilled with their youth group and yeah, it's just exciting. This church was amazing. It had been a brethren assembly uh, that the Spirit of God had just come into and it just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And grew. Thousands, uh, they had to take over this big uh, cinema. Uh, it's an amazing church, full gospel assembly in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, all the young people were walking around with these t-shirts with the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I thought, that's, that's such an exciting thing. Uh, because it is true that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. Now, that's not detracting from what's written here. Uh, it's, in a sense, taking it to a further stage where I wanted to go with us this morning. But in some ways, when we had similar T-shirts made here, I wish we could have gone further. Because it's not enough just to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because Jesus didn't sit down at that point, did he? He didn't say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. No, he said more than that. (laughs) Now, one of the things you notice about Jesus is that he was a very economical preacher. Not like most of us that, you know, have to just keep going in order to make sure you get the point. Jesus was great. He he knew you got the point straight away. Oh, for that gift. (laughs) But... uh, we, we see in Jesus that he never wasted words. So for Jesus to carry on reading this passage is because it is relevant. He didn't want to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He wanted to say, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and to bring the purpose of the anointing into the public domain. Now, I, I know different people have different stopping off points on this. And I've heard sermons preached which stop off, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've also heard preachers get very excited when they've said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. But it doesn't stop there either, does it? It's the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And what you discover is that Jesus had a people-centered purpose all the way through his ministry. He wasn't interested in preaching. He was interested in preaching too. Now, this came as a great reassurance to me because someone noticed that I actually watch the congregation all the time I'm preaching. Funny, sometimes people came up saying, you preach that sermon straight at me, as if I had eye contact with them for the whole of the sermon. It's interesting, I know that's happened sometimes, so someone from completely opposite side of the building came up and said exactly the same thing to me. You know, it's just that I do try and maintain eye contact with as many people as possible. Now, some of you manage to avoid it, <coughs> but some of you don't. <laughs> Hiding behind pillars and things like that, I know how it works. Resting your eyelids and other things that go on. <laughs> but I do like to sort of uh, speak to people, all right? That's why we have the seating like this. Uh, and why I didn't like it when we were in the pavilion and you all hid behind those bright lights. All these bright lights used to shine in my eyes. And I couldn't really see who was there, you know. Sometimes I wasn't even sure that anybody was. But uh, <laughs> now I tell you, you know, you could have escaped. But uh, <laughs> I know that I notice. I notice when people go. I, I notice when people come. I notice when people drop off. I notice when people wake up again. Uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> We, we had, we had uh, two gentlemen in the church who were inclined to drop off. This is some years back. And it was interesting to notice the different techniques that were used to awaken them. <coughs> One wife used to sort of have this technique where she would sort of wind her elbow back as far as possible and then launch it into his ribs, at which point he'd wake up with a tremendous start, you know, and with the ability to look as if he'd been awake all along. <coughs> There was another wife, though, who used to watch her husband fall asleep and then she'd start going <laughs> and laughing because she could see him go. She'd get the giggle so much in the end that it would wake him up. So there are different ways in which these things happen. <laughs> but eye contact to me is really important. And someone was really, really sort of, um, you know, using the liberty to sort of take me apart on one occasion and said, you know, I reckon that if everyone walked out, you'd stop preaching. And I'd said to them, yeah, I would, you know. And they said, well, I wouldn't. You know, preaching matters to me. I'm proclaiming the word of God. And I thought, well, actually, you know, I don't have any problem with that understanding that I'm proclaiming the word of God to people. <laughs> um, it took me a little while. I felt condemned at first when they said this. I thought, oh, goodness, what's wrong with me? You know, I'd stop when the people went. Um, but uh, it just seems to be that Jesus' ministry was people-focused too. He wasn't preaching for the sake of preaching, you know. He wasn't preaching to principalities and powers and to fill the air up and to make sure that, you know, someone was there with a tape recorder to get it all down or, you know, Matthew was taking notes at that particular point. He wasn't preaching, you know, for the record, even though it's good that we've got the record. He was preaching to people. And this is what comes over. He wanted to preach to the poor. He, he wanted to heal the brokenhearted. 
people with a motivation for his ministry. And we need to, to recover that sense of, of motivation. It's not self-centred. But there's tremendous cost to this. Some of you will recall when we, we showed it over the Easter time and very graphically in that video of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 26, verses 10 to 13. Do you remember there in Matthew's Gospel when that woman comes and anoints Jesus? And the disciples start saying, oh, this money should, this should have been sold and the money should have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, the poor you have with you always. This woman has done a beautiful thing. She has anointed me for burial. Now when Jesus said that, he wasn't being callous about the poor. His whole ministry was focused to the poor. You know, I'm here to preach the gospel to the poor. So he wasn't saying, oh, the poor you've always got with you. He wasn't meaning it like that. But he knew that in order to fulfill this commitment, it was going to take more than words. And the anointing that came upon him was always an anointing for burial. I wish we'd realise that. You know, people come forward, they want the anointing that's on brother so-and-so. They want the anointing that's on pastor this. They want the anointing that's on someone else. And they don't realise that there's a sense in which every anointing is an anointing for burial. It's, it's an anointing which is going to cost you. Because it's going to make you so people-focused. If you really let it make you that people-focused, it's going to cost you because you're going to end up having to lay your life down for people. It's an anointing for burial. It's not an anointing for prominence. It's an anointing, not an anointing that puts you on a pedestal, it's an anointing that puts you six feet under in a grave. That's what it is. It's not about pumping you up, it's about putting you down. It's not so that you can be seen, it's so that you can disappear and so that Jesus can be seen. And the Lord knew this. He knew that the anointing was an anointing unto burial, even though that moment occurred much later. Three years later she came and she did that. But Jesus knew from the beginning that he'd come to die. He knew that that was the anointing. You don't just preach good news to the poor, you lay your life down for the poor. You can't just heal broken-hearted people by just sort of coming out with some sympathy and bandages in the end, your heart has to be broken in order to heal the broken-hearted. You can't set the captives free if you're not prepared to be a captive yourself, captivated to the will of God. Paul saw himself as the prisoner of the Lord, far more than he saw himself as the prisoner of the Roman Empire. And these things are important. This is part of the purpose of the anointing. It's people-centered and it's going to cost us it's going to cost us. I know I said that the anointing comes upon flesh and we need to remember that. But when the anointing comes upon flesh, it's in order to deal with flesh. It's in order to deal with humanity. And, and, and people need to be careful. See, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. I know that. And that can be very confusing for us because we can see people still seeming to function under some anointing of God and their lifestyle just doesn't match up but it does cost in the end. There is a price to pay. Anointing for burial is how Matthew 26 puts it. Let me just pick up on the principle of outpouring 
Because in Acts chapter 2, the principle of outpouring is, is spelt out very clearly. <clears throat> Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost, just going to break into his sermon in verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. You see, the anointing in Luke 4 did not immediately flow down. It remained on Jesus. And that was part of what it was all about. For John, the confirmation of Jesus being the anointed one of God was that the anointing came on him and remained. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 32, 33. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It was essential that he saw that. See, the anointing of God had previously come upon many people. The anointing of God had come upon Saul the king, but it didn't remain. The anointing came on prophets who prophesied. But when the anointing came upon Jesus, it remained. Now that was the test. To see the anointing remaining on Jesus. It wasn't there particularly to flow on down to his disciples at that point. And when the anointing was on Jesus, it was immeasurably upon Jesus. John chapter 3 verse 34, he gives his spirit without measure unto him. And so the Spirit's there immeasurably upon Jesus. And Jesus is walking around with the anointing of God upon his life. Now there are times when he delegates authority. He delegates authority to the twelve and he says, I send you out. Go and heal the sick, raise the dead, preach the gospel, do these things. He sends out the seventy, seventy-two if you've got an NIV. And... He sends them out and he says, I give you authority to tread on scorpions. I give you this authority. It was a delegated authority. The Spirit of God was not yet upon them. John chapter 7. Very clear, isn't it? The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now the Spirit was given to Jesus. But we're not now thinking about the Spirit given to Jesus only. We're talking about an outpouring of the Spirit whereby the Spirit comes to you and to me. Now there's a distinction here. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. No holds barred. He just gives Jesus to the world. And what does the world do to Jesus? Rips Him apart, nails Him up on a cross. That's what the world did to Jesus. God does not give the Holy Spirit to the world in that same way. In fact, it's very clear from the Gospels that the Holy Spirit is only given on the specific request of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit being given to Jesus is poured out upon the church, not upon the world. That's the difference between the giving of the Son and the giving of the Spirit. 
For there's an anointing that comes upon Jesus that flows down to the church. And this is what's being described in Acts chapter 2. It's not the only place that it's described. It's also described in Hebrews chapter 1 when it speaks about Jesus as the ascended one being anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. The picture of Jesus ascended Spirit of God being poured out upon him, anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Referred to in Psalm 133, when it's poured out upon the head of the high priest and flows down from the high priest's head all the way down to the hem of the garment. This is a picture of the anointing of Jesus coming upon the body. Jesus anointed in Luke chapter 4. Jesus anointed... Acts chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1, Psalm 133, and now we see that anointing flowing down to the church. We are his body. Hmm? The anointing does not come upon you until you are in the body. If you are dislocated from the body, then you miss out on the anointing. God is not anointing separate entities, he is anointing a body. This is where we have to be so careful when people stand up and say, I have this anointing. They only have that anointing in as much as they reside within the body. The anointing is only relevant when we understand that we might be a hand, but we need the foot, we need the eye, we need the mouth, we need all of these different things. And we need to understand that the anointing only flows as much as we reside in the body. An interesting verse in Colossians, which I'm sure some of you will have already registered in chapter 2, verse 19. It speaks about those that miss out on what God is doing, being puffed up, no longer holding on to the head. It's as if they've become disconnected They're no longer holding the head. They're out of reference with the Lord himself and therefore they're not really going to be moving in the power and authority of God. The day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down upon the body, flowing down from the head. Went right down to the least to the lowest. I don't know who was the lowest. It might even have been James, the Lord's brother, He might have been the last one in. Who knows? I don't even know how you evaluate these things. So immaterial when it comes to the body to start thinking in in terms of highest and lowest. How can you say that a shoulder is higher than a foot? Okay, when you're standing up, maybe. (laughs) But we get into this kind of mentality which thinks that apostles are more than this and that is more than the other. Look, no one's anything outside of the body. And we're all told that we are members one of another. This is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm sure we've understood something as we've gone through these very simple principles of the person, the purpose and the outpouring. I'm sure we've all realised that if we want to see the Spirit of God moving in power in our lives, we've got to stay connected to the Lord Jesus. 
and we've got to stay in relationship with one another. This is not an independent anointing. This is the anointing that came upon the anointed one. As he moved on earth, the anointing resided on him. Taken up into heaven, having died for us and being raised to life again, he received the Holy Spirit poured out upon him in a way that can flow down to you and me. No longer just delegated, but remaining upon us too. First John, you have an anointing from the Holy One that abides, that remains, but it only abides as we abide. It only comes as we understand that we fit within that body. Now, I believe that the key to knowing more of God's anointing in our lives is to see the barriers removed in terms of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus. If you want to know more anointing in your life, it's not that you need your hand, hands laid on you by more anointed people. Not really. It's that you open up your heart more to the Lord Jesus. If you covet the anointing that's on brother so-and-so, or on sister so-and-so, or on apostle this, or evangelist that, don't, don't try and get it from them. Go to source. And, and don't covet someone else's anointing anyway. Huh? And, you know, I, in some ways we could say, I'd, I'd love to be a Wesley, or I'd love to be a Whitby. But, you know, I'm not sure that really God's looking for someone to ride that many miles on horseback at this particular point in time. <clears throat> I'd love to preach as he preached. And I don't want to decry the ministry that he had. But David was commended as one who served God in his generation. And it's not a time where we're looking for people to rise up in great individuality, you know. We've got to be what we are. <laughs> if you're a hand, being anointed by God does not turn you into an ear or an eye, or a nose. Hmm? If you're a, a toe, <laughs> being anointed does not turn you into a finger. <laughs> There's a story told about uh, a preacher who went into his office one morning and found his secretary sitting behind her word processor going, Oh, I'm so anointed, I'm so anointed. He said, Wonderful, I've got so much dictation for you to do. And... <laughs> And she just was so disappointed, you know. She thought she'd been anointed for a prayer meeting. He said, but you're my secretary. If God's anointed you, he's anointed you to type. A bit tough, but you know. <laughs> but there's something in that which is, which is relevant. We don't change location just because of an anointing. It's an equipping for who we are and where we are and what God wants to do in our life. I want us to pray this morning. Just each one of us in our own hearts reaching out to the Lord just taking hold of these very simple principles of the person of Jesus and the purpose of the anointing and just understanding the principle of that outpouring. Just You begin to pray. You don't have to pray out loud. Just begin to talk to the Lord in your heart. We give an opportunity for people who want to respond. Well, let's just begin to talk to the Lord. Just thank him that he's 
brought you into his body. But he's got you there in that place where he wants you to be. He wants to anoint you in that place for that purpose, for that task. And it's an anointing that flows down from Jesus. For him, it was the dove upon the lamb. For us, it'll be like the fire. Burn up every trace of sin to bring the light and glory of